Hi, you're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Joshua Benjamins from the Department of Classics. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Thanks so much, Andrew, for having me on. It's good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Really interested to hear more about uh, what you study. So you are in the Department of Classics. So what are the classics? Right, that's a good question. They get asked that a lot because classics is a term that doesn't really have the same currency it used to. But in this context, classics really means having to do with the classical civilizations, which means Greece and Rome. So essentially, I'm in the discipline that studies ancient Greece and ancient Roman civilization, culture, literature, all the things that are involved with the ancient world in that part of the Mediterranean. So it's a bit of a heterogeneous discipline in that it's not defined necessarily by a set of guiding questions or a particular methodology the way that a lot of other disciplines are, but it's really defined more by some loose chronological and geographical boundaries. And within that, anything that falls within the purview of Greek and Roman culture could be a part of classics. So could be anthropology, could be linguistics, could be history, could be religion, all of that falls into the discipline of classics. So it's a bit of a heterogeneous and even an interdisciplinary field to be in. And that's one thing I really like about classics. And so you can study anything that uses basically, it has to be rooted in the Greek or Latin language, essentially. is the. It's not even necessarily the languages. So the languages are kind of the foundation for doing everything else, because if you really want to get into the culture, you really have to know the languages, but you can address any kind of question that touches on Greek and Roman culture that may not involve language directly. So you might be interested in the development of astronomy in the Roman world, for example, or the transition of astronomical knowledge from Persia to Rome or Greece, or you might be interested in purely political questions. What kind of state was the Roman state? How did it operate? How did it come to be? How was power managed? Um, how was the grain supply managed? There are all kinds of different sorts of questions you might be interested in that have to do with the ancient world. And so the languages are a useful and even in most cases a necessary step towards formulating answers to those questions. But you might be pretty unconcerned with the languages themselves as anything more than a tool. Then there is another part of the discipline that would be very concerned with the language itself. Maybe if you're a philologist and you really want to know how the Latin language came to be and how it evolved from Indo-European and how word formations came to be the way that they are, all of that could be part of classics, but sort of a different, uh, a different sector, as it were, of the field. And literature, of course, is a big part of classics, but you don't need to work on literature to be in classics. It's just one way that you can go, one direction that you can take Greek and Roman language and culture broadly defined. I got you. So essentially, you can study whatever you want, just as long That's as right. it's based in Roman culture or Greek culture. Yeah. And often the sorts of questions that you might ask would require you to bring in a couple of different lenses or a couple of different kinds of knowledge. Uh, maybe if you're interested in religion, you also have to look at literature on the one hand, but also, let's say, cults and maybe even archaeology, the archaeology of temples the evidence that we have for certain rites and their development. And so often there's a sort of interdisciplinarity that comes along with answering questions about the classical world. And that's something that I really enjoy about the discipline because I've always been a lover of interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity. And this is one way to avoid being really 
tied down to a very tightly confined space and be able to roam freely as it were, at least within the boundaries of space and time that are set by the discipline. Are you more Roman or Greek? Do you at least have that defined? Yes, yes. I'm more on the Roman side and I'm also more on the late side. As I said, there's a chronological range and the, the end point of that range is not clearly defined, but I work on the later end. So um, let's say 300 to 600 AD, so chronologically later than most people. And I also work primarily on Roman authors and Roman texts. And my research focuses on Italy and the city of Rome, especially. Um, but the thing about classics, especially for those of us who are Latinists or interested in Roman culture, is that Roman culture and Roman literature are both so heavily dependent on Greek culture and Greek literature that if you want to be a Roman historian, it's an absolute prerequisite to be really familiar with Greek culture and Greek literature because all the authors that you're studying were intimately familiar with and constantly shaped by and constantly interacting with their Greek predecessors. And to understand them at all, you have to know that world that was also their world. And so Latin and Greek always really do go together, but I'm more on the Roman side. So you uh, read Latin. Yes. Yeah. And do you read Greek as well? I do read Greek as well. Oh, wow. Also a little bit of Syriac, which is another ancient language, not quite as often studied. Um, and then, of course, the modern languages are really important just for the sake of scholarship. The modern languages being something... Mostly German, French, Italian, a bit of Spanish. Oh, wow. So you you can read all of these languages as well? Or... Yes, not with equal fluency, but yes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Get okay. by. That's impressive. <laughs> How long? It's a very language-heavy course of study to involve oneself in, and it's a little bit frustrating early on because so much of your time kind of has to be devoted to cultivating the languages because that's, as it were, the passageway into all the other things that you want to do. So languages are definitely a big part of the discipline, but once you've mastered the languages, you can really branch out into lots of other things. Right, yeah. That sounds... How long would you say it took you to get to a place where you like felt comfortable saying you just were fluent in reading all these languages? Yeah, it, it varies by the language, I think. And it also depends on what you mean by fluency. Uh, I think to really get to the place where you understand the language inside and out, and as it were, can think in terms of the language takes longer than it does to get to a point where you can decipher the words on the page. So I think Latin and Greek would be the languages I feel that I have the most intimacy with. And that probably takes about it might vary by the person, but six or seven years or so to really feel like you know it inside and out. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I think of, you know, classical studies, like people are, you know, looking back at thing at records and trying to bring them into modern languages, right? Like, you know, thinking about people like translating Egyptian hieroglyphs mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. translating, you know, runes or something. Um, but I guess with you, you don't really... I mean, you want to be able to translate, obviously, but like yeah. you want to also be able to be fluent in Latin and be able to like um, think in Latin. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's a great point. And there are, I think, two things to say there. One is that the way that we tend to teach classical languages is very translation based. So the way that you learn Latin is by constantly translating Latin into English. And that's the established pedagogical method that we've had for Latin and Greek for the longest time, and it's still persistent. And it's not necessarily the method that you'll see used in teaching modern German or modern French or modern Spanish, but it's been very persistent in the classical languages specifically. Um, 
And so students, when they're at that level of language learning, are always being prompted to translate into English. But really, as you go farther along in the field, you want to and should move away from that and get to the point where you can work with a lot of facility with the languages without having to or even tending to then convert it back into your own language. So that's one thing I would say. And then the other thing is that translation itself is a really important work. And it's not necessarily part of classics, but there are people in classics who do a lot of translation work. And I, I've done quite a bit of translation work myself, and I find it a very challenging and rewarding enterprise to figure out how to convey something best in English that was written in a remote uh, context, both in time and space. Right, yeah, that would be so challenging. Yeah, I think about, I took some Latin in uh, high school and it's always, it was kind of funny seeing things pop up. Like at one point I was reading, I think the uh, Aeneid or something, and it was like, they talked about an ear of corn. And I was like, I don't think they would have had corn. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's obviously much yeah. more, uh, or like examples of technologies, right, that people wouldn't have had. But then also just yeah. like of connotations that like, you know, you would completely miss, right? Exactly. And and often it's the less obvious things that are the biggest obstacles or challenges that you maybe don't even see. Like the whole conceptual world of Rome is different than than that of ours. And and simple ideas like space and time, for example, don't translate easily um, from one culture to another because they're inhabiting different idioms of thought and of language. Right. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to your research, right? You actually are studying like the concept of time in um, Roman culture, right? Right. Yeah. I'm interested in both ways that Romans thought about time and ways that they divided and marked time. That's kind of on the granular, uh, easily approachable level, but then also kind of broader questions about how Romans thought about history and the relationship of past, present, and future and how they saw their place within that broader movement if there was a movement from past to present to future. And so that brings in questions about what is history and what is progress. And I'm interested in how Romans thought about those sort of questions, as I say, especially in this period called late antiquity. So between roughly 300 to 600 AD. So are, is there an idea of progress in Rome? Like we have the idea of progress now, like had that already started to develop? that uh, were like kind of in a linear history? Uh, I think in some ways we can see some of the genesis of the idea of progress in my period, but certainly the ancient world doesn't have an established notion of the necessary betterment and progression of things over time in the way that moderns are very attached to that idea. That's a very modern presupposition. And it's actually one that's especially dangerous for historians. I'm mostly an ancient historian. And as an historian, it's very easy to tell the story of the past in terms of this necessary, guaranteed progression of things from a less civilized or uh, more barbarous or less enlightened age to more enlightenment, more progress, revolution, improvement, betterment. That's the way we tend to think about how history goes in the modern, in the modern age. Um, but that's a very modern notion, and it's not one that was um, endemic to ancient culture necessarily at all. Right, yeah. And as you say, the difference, one way to think about that would be the difference between kind of cyclical time and linear time, that once you have a strong notion of beginning and end 
and the idea of history as a kind of timeline moving from some origin to some destination, then the idea of progress becomes very natural. But ancients didn't have that assumption of the linearity of time in the way that we do, in the way that we naturally conceive of time with a timeline, as it were. So ancients, you are referring to your time period with the yeah. word ancients? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you so you would say that this pro you you said the progress idea or linearity kind of had started to appear, but wasn't really cementing in your time period. Right. Right. So the one of the most famous markers of linearity is this division of history into uh, BC and AD, for example. Right. Um, and that's a way that's a, a sort of unifying and homogenizing way of plotting time because everything has a place on the number line. And that division in terms of BC and AD didn't even come into existence until the first half of the sixth century. It was a Scythian, a Scythian monk named Dionysus Exiguus who came up with this pattern of AD and BC uh, before Christ and after Christ, Anno Domini. And he didn't even come up with that with the intent of providing a convenient dating era. He actually came up with it because there were a lot of disputes over how to calculate Easter. And this was one way of answering those disputes. So that whole notion didn't even come into existence until the sixth century, and it didn't take root until much, much later. It really wasn't until the 18th century, actually, that it became really conventional to use BC and AD. So that's just one example of a very abstract dating scheme that we all take for granted because we all are used to calculating dates this way, but it was not uh, endemic to the ancient world at all. Another example would be centuries and decades. You know, we easily think about the past in terms of centuries, the 18th century, the 16th century, the 14th century, and then decades as ways of plotting and subdividing the contents of a century. But those also are very recent notions. In fact, the idea of a century has only been around for about three and a half centuries. Um, there's a famous poem which says the 19th century, the 20th century, there never were any others because we didn't invent the idea of the century until that recently. And the notion of decades is even more recent. It's only been seven decades that we've thought about the past in terms of decades. And these sort of homogenizing schemes for time are very new. And it takes a little bit of work to put ourselves outside of those time schemes. But that's really what we have to do if you want to understand how the ancients thought about and placed themselves in time. They didn't have these all-encompassing um, homogenizing schemes in the way that we do. And they didn't think about the past in terms of dates. They thought about the past in terms of events instead of numbers, which is a very different way of conceptualizing the past and situating yourself in, in the past or in the present. So I guess like, oh, what intervals were present in, a, in the Roman concept of time? Right, so Roman conceptions of time really come out of Greek conceptions of time. And the way that Greeks situated themselves in time was really with the use of events. And actually a date really is an event if you think about it. Uh, that fact is concealed by the homogenizing force of the BC, AD or BCE, CE framework. But even that framework is kind of event laden because there is some event that's taken to be the dividing point between BC and AD. Uh, and so event dates really are events, whether we notice that or not. We're always plotting a date with reference to some event. And you can see that because once you move away from events, you find it really hard to have a date number make sense to you. 
it's easy to say 1960 and 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 come up with some correlates for that date because we have events we can link with that decade. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, the Vietnam War, any number of the you know various kinds of cultural revolution, and it's those events that help us quickly place ourselves in 1960, for example. Similar with 1940, you can think of the World War. And the farther back you go in time, the less you have the benefit of those events to latch onto, like hooks to place yourself. So, you know, if you're, if you're reading about the history of China a very, very long time ago, a date like 2200 BC or 3000 BC really doesn't mean anything to you because you don't have events to link it with. And so I would say a, a date really always is an event, but we've lost that recognition. And in the ancient world, if you don't have the timeline, you don't have an all-encompassing numerical scheme, all you have are the events. And that's kind of neat because that kind of shows the conceptual work that always goes into placing yourself in time. You always use an event. So for an ancient historian, they might use the Trojan War, a really big, important event, or the death of Alexander, something that got recognized pretty soon after as a really epochal event. And then you can date yourself by measuring the interval of distance either before or after. So five years before the Trojan War, 10 years after the death of Alexander, 20 years before the founding of Rome. The date of the founding of Rome becomes a really foundational date in Roman culture for how you situate yourself in the past. Uh, 2200 years after the foundation of Rome. So that's one example uh, of how you might use an event to situate yourself in time if you're in ancient Rome or in ancient Greece. Right, I got you. so so you talked about BC AD is like this cutoff that like we use in modern times or I guess people um, mm -hmm. try to make it to like BC and CE but mm -hmm. um, the I guess with that you know when people first implemented it right there was this idea of like this was like this really important date but now I guess we've kind of moved to this idea that like okay we're all using this date as like a standard cutoff so that we can all situate ourselves like universally. But I essentially like, I guess you're talking about um, in Rome, they just, or in this time period, every culture would have its own signifying dates and like people wouldn't really, you know, be able to communicate like about large timescales with each other because yes. they would have they would be all like i don't know what event that is if you went to another culture yep exactly right every culture has its own and not even necessarily every culture but every city might have its own calendar and its own rulership and it might count its years by the reign of a certain ruler but if you don't live in that region in that polis in that city that ruler's dates of reign don't mean anything to you and so it's really a world of local time and that's something that's so foreign to us because in the modern world, we've adopted universal time. This is a world that doesn't have universal time. Each city, each local area has its own time. So there's no such thing as Greek time, for instance. You might have Athenian time and Sicilian time and Spartan time and Argive time. And those are all different. They all have their own calendar. They all have their own rulerships. And there's a complex and difficult process of adjustment if you want to place uh, an event in one region in terms of the calendar and civic regime of another region. And one of the interesting things about that is that, of course, this world doesn't have the pressures of mass media and mass communication and mass transportation, which really were the driving forces behind the synchronisms that we've developed in the modern world. It's especially the Industrial Revolution that presses us to have 
these kind of synchronizing timescales. So in some ways, interestingly, the, the conquest of space necessitates then the conquest of time. If you're moving around really quickly from place to place, it becomes necessary to have these homogenizing schemes. But if life is lived on a smaller scale, it's not as important to be able to frame events in one place in terms of events in another place. I think it's the, the problem of synchronizing railway timetables, for instance, that drives the creation of time zones. Right. This is the world that doesn't need that because it doesn't have that kind of conquest of space. Right. I, yeah, I see that, um, you know, in terms of like high speed transportation and things like that, the Romans obviously wouldn't have had access to that yet. But the, I guess the difference in my mind between Rome and Greece, right? Greece is, uh, at least like in my, you know, pre-Alexander maybe, um, it's a bunch of city states. So like the idea of local time really makes a lot of sense because it's just people yeah. like living locally. But then Rome came in and created an empire, right? Mm -hmm. So they had to coordinate across a vast amount of space. I guess they wouldn't have had to move quickly between those places necessarily. But I mean, there there is an idea of like conquesting space there, right? Yeah, exactly right. And that's why the conquest of space drives the conquest of time. Once you have a world empire, the pressures upon you to synchronize all of these areas become really strong. And that starts already with Alexander because Alexander unifies the Greek world in a way that hasn't been done before. And that's why the third century BC is when we start to see universal histories, histories that aspire to cover the vast span either of space or of time. You know, if you think about it, a universal history can be universal in space, covering all places, or universal in time, aspiring to cover all times or both. But both of those impulses become strong in the age of Alexander when the Greek world is unified as never before, and then they grow stronger when Rome becomes a world empire. And the history of this one city eventually becomes the history of the world. So by late antiquity, the period that I'm looking at, to write the history of Rome and to think about the future of Rome and to situate Rome in time is really to write the history of the world and the future of the world and to situate the world in time because the city in the world had become to some degree one in the same. And so a date like the beginning of the city of Rome can be a universalizing axis or coordinate on which to map the history of all places and all times. And so people are at this point trying to, you're, you're saying like, tell the story of humanity essentially by writing these histories? Yeah, exactly. And one of the new currents that you see in my time period is Christianity. And people often point to Christianity as the source of a new conception of time, linear time, where you have a clear idea of an origin, which is the creation of the world, this hard and fast beginning point. Instead of sort of the hazy mists of mythical time, you have creation, and then you have the end of the world or judgment of some kind. That's a clear endpoint. And so one of the interesting features of my period is to look at what happens when Christianity comes on the scene and how do Christian authors map their, what you might call their sacred history, all these events of the Bible and both the Old Testament events that come in biblical literature and then more recent events with Jesus and his coming and so on. All of these events that are seen to have a, a religious or sacral import, how they take those events and then map them onto existing um, dates from what you might call secular or mundane history. And so, for example, we get um, this Christian bishop called Eusebius who 
around the year 300, he creates this work called the Chronicon or the Chronicle. And what he does in this Chronicle is one of the important stepping stones in the development of this universal history genre is that he has a bunch of columns and each column represents the key dates for an empire. So you'll have the Persian Empire, you have the Macedonian Empire, you have the Athenian Empire. You also have the Hebrew people and the Persians and the Asian peoples. And he'll list the regnal years for each king within the column. And then on the left-hand side, you'll have the Olympiads. The Olympics occur every four years. So that's one of these universalizing measuring sticks you can apply. So you have the Olympiads in one column, then you have each empire. And then that goes on page after page after page. You have all of these columns. And as the pages go on, you see columns appear and columns disappear. So for a while, you have all of these Asian peoples that eventually get Greek antiquity. But as you go on through time, more and more empires disappear. The Persian Empire disappears, the Babylonian disappears, the Macedonian disappears. Eventually, you only have the Romans and the Jews. And then the Jews disappear from his column after AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. And then you only have Rome. And so that's a really interesting development. It's a kind of pictorial representation of the supremacy of Rome on the axis of time, right? For a long time, there's this miscellany, but by the last page, the only column left is Rome. Right. So Rome has triumphed in this uh, representation of time. And he also melds biblical events with Roman events. So it's a Christian Rome. So Christianity and Rome kind of share the supremacy or hegemony of time. So that's one way of mapping Christianity onto Roman time and also showing the supremacy of Roman time as it were, or all the, the times and places of these other empires that have now succumbed eventually to Rome. Right. Isn't, I guess, so you said like the linearity that, you know, modern people kind of ascribe to history hadn't really appeared then, but I, I feel like that kind of suggests like, you know, this guy is like saying everything was moving towards having Rome and then, and I, I assume in his mind, probably that Rome would just be what was going for the rest of time, right? Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know what he would have yeah. thought. Like, yeah, that's kind of the assumption that Rome keeps on going. And that's not a new idea. The idea of Rome, that Rome will go on forever is a very old idea. Um, Virgil, you see it in Virgil where Jupiter prophesies that this empire will have no boundaries of either space or time. It will be an empire without end. And that's a shared notion in the Roman world that Rome is destined to endure on and on and on. And one interesting place that we see that idea is in this ancient habit of thinking about the history of Rome and hence by this time, the history of the world because those two are very closely connected in terms of the ages of a human life. So there's this interesting idea that a human life has these different periods or ages. You have infancy, you have boyhood, you have young manhood, you have adulthood, you have old age. And the world goes through these ages similarly. And that's an old idea in Greek culture and then Roman culture that there's this homology between the ages of a human life and the ages of the world. And you can apply that then to the history of Rome. And we know that Seneca did this and the, the historian Florus did this. He told the story of Rome in terms of these ages of infancy, boyhood, manhood, and so on. And that scheme implies that you're going to get to the end because a human lifespan has an end. Right. We can see that, at least in the classical Roman world, there's a resistance to the idea of saying that Rome will have an end. 
So, you know, Cicero, for example, in his On the Republic uses this simile and talks about Rome in its boyhood and then eventually verging on manhood and now it's in its prime and so on. But then he also wants to say that it's not going to die. He says there is no death of the state. The state should be so constituted as to be eternal. And for the state to die would be like the cosmos collapsing. Well, unfortunately, it looks like we're running out of time. So is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go? Sure. Um, I'll say first, Latin and Greek are wonderful languages and the literatures are marvelously complex and um, and variegated. And so for those of you who have the chance to learn Latin or Greek and enter into this wonderful space, um, I highly recommend it. But I know many of us don't have the time or the leisure to do that, but I'd maybe just put in a little word for the value of history. Not necessarily ancient history, but maybe ancient history especially. Um, there's a lot, uh, a lot of benefit to be gained from going through the challenge of thinking through a culture and a world and an idiom that's different from our own. And it's both challenging and very rewarding. And it frees us from a lot of the assumptions and prejudices that we share with our culture and even with our language that we have often without thinking about it just because of the way that our language and our culture tends to divide up the world. And so it's very rewarding in a lot of ways to um, take advantage of these opportunities to enter a different time space in whatever way that might be in the original language or in translation and um, have some of our ideas challenged and just exposed to very different ways of thinking about such basic ideas as space or time or anything else. Thanks so much. Uh, today, I've been speaking with Joshua Benjamins from the Department of Classics. Thanks so much for being on the show, Joshua. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.